spend a little bit of time thinking through verse 20 uh, before we move on into the next, because the next section that we're going to look at here relies very heavily on what happens in Luke chapter 9 and verse 20. So as we've been looking through Luke, the, you know, the disciples have had you know, these last few weeks uh, a great deal of things going on in their life. They have seen amazing things and been part of just phenomenal acts of God in the past weeks that they have been with Jesus here. And as they have gone through all of that and they've come and the last thing they were a part of there was Jesus feeding the 5,000. And they were involved in that. We saw Jesus drew them into that so they became part of that miracle. After that miracle that Jesus does there by feeding the 5,000 men and and children and and women, so much more than that, um, Jesus takes away his disciples and they get away by themselves, the 12 there with Jesus, and he asks them a question. Having them been in amongst the people and hearing what has been done as they were there when Jesus fed all of these people, he asked them a question. The first question he asked, and this is in the, the verses which just precede here, he says, who are people saying that I am? Who do they say that I am? And there's a number of answers that come up through uh, the, the discussion and what people think. Some think he's a, a prophet who's been raised from the dead, Elijah perhaps, or, or even John the Baptist who was just killed, um, come back again. And there's all sorts of ideas about who Jesus is. And then he turns the question more pointedly and he turns it to, to them. He says, who do you say I am? And that's where we come to in verse 20 where he says, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, who speaks on behalf of the twelve, Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. This is a question that Jesus asked here on which all history turns. That's the question on which every life turns. Who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? And then, as now, and we've talked about this before, there is much confusion about who Jesus is. People think all sorts of things about him, and if you ask a hundred people, you'll probably get a hundred different ideas of who Jesus is and why he came and what his life was about. But Peter answers here, and he gives his answer He says that they believe that Jesus is the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Matthew, when he writes about this same thing, remember the the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record all of these things together in their, their order through this, and they give little bits of different detail as they go along. But... Matthew reminds us that this confession that, G, that, that Peter makes, that Jesus is the Christ of God, that he is the, the Messiah, the Son of God, he reminds them that Peter didn't think of this himself. It wasn't Peter's idea, but it was God who opened his eyes to see that truth. The reason they see that Jesus is God is because God has allowed them to understand that. So what does that mean? What does this mean that Jesus is the Christ of God. Understanding the identity of Jesus is the foundation of what will come next. So we're going to move into these verses which follow, particularly verses like verse 23, which says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. 
Now we get into some, you know, that gets into some difficult words and some some very uh, hard things to follow. But if we don't come back to this confession first, we don't understand why Jesus is saying what he says in those. This is the foundation of what he's about to say. Who is Jesus? What does it mean that he is the Christ of God? And how does that influence and affect us? These words, which are a confession of Peter here, that Jesus is the the promised saviour, that he is God. Christ is really a title. We use it more as, as a name, but it was a title more than a name. Christ refers to the promised one, the Messiah. Uh, so it spoke about what Jesus was coming to do. The Old Testament, we might have talked about the Messiah. In the New Testament, they spoke of the Christ, the promised one to come. Uh, and so when, when uh, Peter announces or confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he is uh, confessing that Jesus is the one that God promised one promise to bring salvation and more than that that he is not just a bringer of salvation but that he is god so this we want to think about a little bit more this morning because this is this is what jesus came to do he came to communicate these truths to communicate what this means that he came to bring uh an understanding of who god is what salvation is and what eternal life is John, in his gospel, began his gospel and says it this way in in one verse, in in John chapter 1. In fact, the first part of the gospel of John is just magnificent and beautiful. But in John chapter 1 and verse 14, he speaks of Jesus as this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the first part of John's Gospel, the first five verses, Jesus, or John identifies what he means by the Word. It says, and the Word became flesh. Those first few verses of, of John, he tells us that the Word is Jesus. That's the, uh, the way he describes Jesus, that he is the Word of God. The Word is Jesus. That Jesus is eternally God, he will describe in those verses. That the Word was with God and the Word was God. That Jesus is indeed God, that he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. Now, with Jesus on earth, God has uniquely and beautifully and fully communicated who he is. God's communicated himself in the past and has, has shown who he is in the past. But in Jesus, we find the most complete expression, the most complete communication of who God is. And here, Jesus communicates who he is and what he came to do. And so, quickly this morning, I want to think through just a a couple of things about what it means that Jesus came to communicate these things, what it means that he is the Christ of God. And the first is this, that Jesus communicated to man. He is God's communication to man. In this, he communicated in our language. That is, he spoke what we could understand is the pre-existent word that he was before all things in him all things exist paul tells us in other places now when we think of word you know when john uses this description of jesus as being the word of god the word became flesh we read a moment ago we think of communication 
That's usually what we, we think of, and that's exactly what is intended when the Bible uses that description of Jesus, that he is the Word. Word is the most accurate form of communication. It's the, the way we can most clearly express what we intend to mean. The Bible doesn't say that, that Jesus was music. You know, we, we read just a moment ago in Proverbs uh, chapter 3, and it, it's, it shows Jesus or it describes wisdom like being Jesus, kind of personifies that. But Jesus is not only wisdom. He is more than that. Jesus isn't uh, communicating or God didn't communicate with sound or, or gesture. You know, the eternal God is communicating to us in a tangible way. You know, I, I, I love, and I told you this before, I, I love classical music. And so much of classical music often tells a story or it describes a feeling. And we'll sit home uh, or have it on, on the radio or whatever at home and listening to it. And, uh, uh, and I'll tell the girls what the, the musician and, and what the, the composer is trying to describe with that music. But sometimes with the music, it's not always easy to pick what they intended. Sometimes you get a certain feeling, and that might not be what the musician had intended. That's just how you, you feel. You have to know more about what the composer was writing. It's not always easy to understand, so we need explanation. So God isn't, isn't like that. He isn't a, a, a vague communicator. He's communicating to us in a way that we understand. We can see, we can read, we can understand how he acts and lives and speaks. God has always been a communicator. When he created, and he put Adam and Eve into the garden, God came and he talked with Adam and Eve every day. Morning and evening, he came and he communicated. He spoke with Adam and Eve. As the years passed on and we move a little further into history, uh, we come to, to Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob, who would be the foundation of God's chosen people of, of Israel along the way. And God would communicate with them about what he expected, what he wanted, where he would take them. He would communicate with Moses as, as God would use Moses to, to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt and, and into the, the promised land. He would communicate with the people of Israel in, in various ways over the, the years, through the law. He gave the law so they knew what he expected. He gave them the, what's called the Shekinah, the great pillar of fire and cloud which showed his presence and showed them the way to go. These were all ways that God communicated. God still communicates now and he communicates through creation. But creation, like music, is is, is not completely clear all the time because of the way sin is or how we see things or conscience. God gave us a conscience, but again, our conscience isn't always clear because it's shaped by our sin nature. But in all these ways, God communicates, and he communicates to us now most particularly through the Word of God and through the Spirit. Ultimately, though, Jesus is the great communication of God to us. The great understanding of who God is. He communicates in a way that we can understand and we can be taught. If you will, he spoke our language in a way that we can understand. It might be like, like you know, and I know we have, have people here who speak other languages uh, first over English. And sometimes it's always hard to, to understand. It would be like me coming to you and perhaps saying, Ni halma. 
I hope I said that right, otherwise it's not very good communication, is it? Or, or perhaps, uh, salamat pagi. You understand what I say, it's a way to speak. I, I practiced those, so I hope I got them. <laughs> so that we can, all of those things are, hello, or good morning, how are you? And this is how Jesus came to us. He didn't come to us in a way that we didn't understand. He came in our language. He looked like us. He acts like us. He feels like us. When we look at his life, we understand what he's feeling, how he's speaking. John reminds us, as as Peter does here, that he became flesh. The incarnation. That is when God became man. Galatians says, and the word became flesh. Or, or Sorry, uh, in Galatians chapter 4 it says, and, and uh, he was born of a virgin. At the right time and in the right place. Hebrews chapter 10, it says of Jesus that a body was prepared for him. In Philippians, that great passage in Philippians chapter 2 which speaks of why Jesus came. It says that he came in the likeness of humanity. He communicated to us in our language. And in that, he communicated with purpose. Communicated with purpose. There was a reason he came. It wasn't just so that he could talk to us about who God is. There are many reasons why Jesus came. Here are some of the the key purposes, the reasons why Jesus came. One of the first reasons that he came is he came to confirm God's purpose or promise. And that is really to show that God is faithful. See, all along, God has been, been promised to come. And that's what the word Christ means. The title Christ means that, the promised one. So by Jesus coming, he is reminding us that God keeps his promises and to remind us that God will fulfill all of his promises it began right at the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and God made very very gently at first but he gave us a promise that sin would be destroyed and salvation would come and Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise he came to reveal the Father see as we go along and a lot of people they look at the Old Testament perhaps and they think one way about how God is because they see the law and they see the, the, all the, the rules and the things to follow or they see how God acted in, in particular instances and they think of God in a certain way, often angry or, or troublesome or wrathful. Or they look at particular parts of the New Testament and they see, Jesus, they see God in one manner and that he's, he's just loving. But Jesus came and in Jesus we began to see what God is really like, what the Father is really like. He isn't just a a ruler God, and he isn't just a, a, a savior, but he is indeed a father, a loving father. He came to be a high priest. A high priest is an intercessor, one who goes between. Jesus came to be the one who could stand between me and God. 
so that as being one of his children, as believing that Jesus saved me from sin, I can go to Jesus and, and approach God the Father and ask for forgiveness and ask for help and guidance. And Jesus essentially says to the Father, do what he asks, work in his life because he's one of mine. He stands between for us. He came to put away sin. That's why he died on the cross. To die for the sin we have. He came to destroy the works of the devil. It is to completely ruin all that Satan has intended, and he will do that fully. He came to be an example for us of what it is to live for God. And he came to prepare for the second coming. This is the second kingdom. That is the place when God will bring all of his people together and he will have his kingdom as he designed it to be and he will rule over his people in love and glory for all eternity. But for that to come, he had to prepare the way that salvation might be available. Jesus communicated to us, told us who God is and what he came to do. Secondly, what he did come to do was to communicate about God. He came to communicate about God. Now, when Peter makes this confession, he says, Peter answered and said that he is the Christ of God. He was saying something more than just that he communicated or that he has this title, but he was saying something very important about who Jesus is in his being. Was he human? Or was he divine? Was he one or the other? You know, there is uh, much talk, I guess, about his humanity. There isn't really much um, question in regards to whether Jesus actually lived. Only the, the nutcases these days really question whether Jesus actually lived. There's too much historical evidence around to show that he did, in fact, live on this earth as a real person in a real way. Paul told us in Romans, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. That is, he was born as a human. He had the physical nature. He was born of a virgin, we, we know. Galatians tells us that. Matthew tells us that in chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, though, tells us what separated him from every other person, every other human, was that he had no sin. He was without sin. He developed, we saw this in the early parts of Luke, that he developed like every other human child. You know, when he was, was born, he, he cried when he was hungry or when he was in pain. He grew up. He learned he had to go to school with his brothers and sisters. He learned the trade of his father. He grew and he developed as every normal child does. He had reason and he had will and he had all the, the sinless infirmities that we have. It's, you know, he got weary. We've seen that even just recently. He was, was hungry and thirsty. He slept, he cried. He felt pain and sorrow. All of those things which are at the heart of what it is to be human. Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that he emptied himself. That is, he lowered himself to be like us. He set aside that glory. He veiled his glory as God for a time. 
and became like us. His humanity was wholly human. But he was also wholly, completely God. Was he divine or was he human? Yes. Both. Entirely. Completely and wholly. When Peter makes the confession that he is the Christ of God, he is making that confession that Jesus is God in the flesh. He had the nature of God. He showed the attributes of God. Remember in, in, in John chapter 10, and that's the great passage where Jesus talks about being the door uh, and that he is the, the door of the sheep and, and one of those great passages where he says he keeps his people. And at the end of one of those great passages there in chapter 10 and verse 30, he says, to the great irritation of the Pharisees, I and the Father are one. He's telling them that he is God. Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 2, he says, For in him, that is in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So everything that God is was in Jesus, in that body. He was eternal. He was omniscient. That is, he knew everything. You know, that's how you see so often through the Gospels, don't you? That he, he knew what they were thinking. And he could respond to the way they were thinking, not by what they said, because he knew they were thinking. He was, uh, was all-powerful. I mean, how often have we seen that just in the last two chapters of Luke, where he could feed a crowd of 5,000 plus, or cast out a demon simply by word, or heal a, a young girl dying. He had the complete power of God. And what does this mean for you? If God, if, if Jesus is holy and completely human, and he is holy and completely God, what does that mean for us? What it means is that perfection died for imperfection. Or as the Bible puts it, the just died for the unjust. That is, that God was completely and holy in Jesus Christ, is completely and holy Jesus Christ, and he died in our place. There's a Bible word for that, which John uses called propitiation. Propitiation means appeasement. When Jesus died, because he was holy God, completely perfect, when he died on the cross to pay for sin, God the Father looked down on Jesus and his wrath on sin was appeased. This, it was enough. It was everything that God the Father needed to be able to forgive sin was that Jesus died. Now you might say, perhaps as I do with all of that, I don't understand. How is it? That Jesus can be wholly human, completely human, and completely God. I don't understand. And I'm saying that, I mean, I don't. Paul wrote it this way. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, 
justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. There's, there's no controversy, there's no argument that this, this work of God to bring Jesus to be completely human and completely God is a mystery. We don't understand it. How are two natures in one person? It isn't comprehensible. But if we could understand everything about God, he wouldn't be God. He is above us. There are things about God which we are just never going to grasp. We're never going to be able to comprehend in this finite time. Perhaps, perhaps in eternity when we get to enjoy heaven, maybe some of the things that Jesus teaches us is how it was possible for him to come as holy God and holy man. I don't understand it, but I believe it. And I believe it because that's what God says, you believe. And I believe that because God has opened my eyes to understand the truth, to love him. Jesus came to communicate. He came to communicate about God, and he came to communicate salvation. In John, which we began in John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Jesus came to communicate to us because he is full of grace and truth. Verses which are very familiar, and if you have a habit of memorizing verses and haven't memorized Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, they're verses which you can write as ones to remember. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That is, it's by grace that we are saved. Grace something completely undeserved. Jesus came, John tells us, he came full of grace. That is, he came and we completely were undeserving. The emphasis of grace, so we speak of grace and it means that, you know, that undeserved favor. The emphasis on grace is the poverty of mankind. That is, that we have absolutely nothing to offer God. It's the poverty that we don't have anything which, which says to God, well, I must do that for them. We have nothing to offer God. But grace says, despite the absolute poverty, despite the fact that mankind has nothing to offer me which would give them salvation, my kindness will do it anyway. The limitless kindness of God. It's a contrast. Grace is a contrast between the emptiness of mankind and the fullness of God's kindness. It's that we don't have anything to please God to say, yes, save me. But because of God's unlimited kindness, he will bring salvation anyway. And he does it for us. People often think of the the might and the majesty of God. One of the things that Jesus shows us is the loveliness of God. That he is kind and compassionate, and open and generous-hearted. 
and good. He was the embodiment and the communicator of all of God's grace. But not only is he full of grace, but says that he is full of truth. He is the great communicator of what truth is. Just a few verses after, we quoted a few times this morning, John chapter 1 and verse 14. Just a few verses after that, in verse 17, it says this, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself tells us later, says that it's the truth that sets us free. Truth of Jesus. See, Jesus confronts us with reality. He shows us the reality of our sin. He shows us what death is, truly. And he tells us the truth about God. And he tells us the truth about salvation. One of the things that he tells us about the truth of salvation is that he is the only way. He is the only way of salvation. These two attributes, grace and truth, they're the attributes which are most closely associated with salvation. The things which speak most clearly and most often about salvation. See, salvation, believing Jesus to save us from our sin, is believing in God's truth. The gospel it is to believe that what God says is true, that I am a sinner, that God is not, and that he can forgive me of those sins. There is no saving grace except for believing the truth of the gospel, to believe what Jesus came to do. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Your vague belief in God, uh, apart from the truth about Jesus, will get you nowhere will bring no salvation. You can believe in God and you can say, oh yeah, I believe in God and you know, I think Jesus lived, but this vague attitude toward God or this vague idea about God will not bring salvation. We have to believe that what he said and what he did was truth, that he died for us. Peter confesses here, as I know many of us this morning do, that Jesus is the promised saviour. He is the promised Savior. He came to open our eyes to reveal the truth of God. He came to bring salvation from sin. To believe this is true is to have everything in life change for you. To believe what Jesus came to do is, is truly life-changing in the eternal sense. To be rescued from, from death. Those of us who believe, as Peter confesses here, we're up to put off the message. You see, it's one thing to, to look here and say, well, this whole confession, this, Jesus isn't asking an unbeliever. He's asking a believer in him here, who do you say that I am? And why is he asking that? We can't put off messages like this where we hear the gospel again and, and, and put off, you know, I've, I've heard this and I've believed this. Because to confess Jesus as Savior, to truly believe him for salvation, is the foundation for every part of life ahead. 
That's where, where Luke is going to take us in just these next few verses. You know, that, that belief, that heart belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is what will motivate. It's what will sustain you to live for God each and every day. This is where Jesus leads then. He says, if you believe, if you confess that, that I am the Christ of God, then come after me. And if you come after me, you will need to deny yourself. Follow me. It's going to cost. That's why Jesus gets them to this confession. Do you truly believe me? If you truly believe me, it's going to cost you to follow me. And so as we get through next week, we'll look more particularly at that. See, now that you believe Jesus, what then? What then? You give your life for him. That's what follows. When you believe Jesus, you then give your life for him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for these moments where we have time to be reminded of the truth that we confess. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That God came in the flesh to be like us so that he could die for us to save us from our sins. Let us never forget this bold, grand, and glorious truth. Let it never stray far from our minds or our hearts, but be the foundation of our motives, our attitudes, and our actions in everything that we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing a song of response as.